this episode of Moments in Leadership. Quick intro here because these things have really started to run away from me a little bit, so I'm really going to shorten these up. Special thanks to the folks over at Lethal Minds Journal podcast team for helping me out with this episode, specifically Cyrus Sigura and Jeremy Kofsky. Guys, thanks so much for all of your help with this episode. By the way, you can support this project by signing up on my Supercast site. It's like a Patreon account, but it's specifically for podcasts. And the financial support goes towards offsetting the costs that I pay out of pocket. And at the end of the year, if there's any money left over, I just donated to Veterans Charities. So um, you're kind of chipping in to keep it free for everybody else. And I've got some great subscribers, and I really appreciate everybody's generosity there. The link to my Supercast site is in the show notes. It's also on my Instagram site and other places too. But the benefit is that the supporters get access to the episodes before everyone else does. So on that note, thanks to my new supporters on Supercast, two subscribers, Diego Marmalejo at the Hot Wash level. I'm sorry if I slaughtered your last name. And David Jones at the Buy Me a Beer level. Guys, thanks so much for all your support. And thank you for those of you who have been leaving reviews. I really appreciate that too. By the way, be sure to check out FieldSeats.com. It's a really cool e-commerce, federally licensed firearms dealer. And they provide these virtual reviews on brand new firearms, optics, and gear. And then at the end of the review, they give that item away to somebody who has attended the virtual review. And each review has a limited number of seats available for purchase. So the chances of winning the giveaway at the end of the review are really good. So, you know, there's a code. There's always a code. Use code LETHALMINDS to get 10% off your seat for a virtual review. And you can also check them out on their Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube sites, all carrying the same account name, Fields underscore Seats. Of course, there's standard disclosures, terms and conditions apply and all that, but go go check it out and see if it's a good fit for you. I think they're a good bunch of dudes and their sponsorship uh, to Lethal Minds Journal helps go towards supporting this project as well. My guest for this episode is retired Lieutenant General Greg Newbold. Commissioned in 1970, he became an infantry officer and served in the 1st Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division, and the 3rd Marine Division, but was most notably the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit Commander for the initial invasion of Somalia. And you may remember the news footage of the Mew elements coming ashore that were swarmed by the TV news lights. That's actually a story that he explains in this episode, and I will guarantee you most of you have never heard this story before. His last role was as the director of Operations J3 for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which he retired out of, partly as a protest to the Secretary of Defense's plans for invading Iraq. And while we discuss that in this episode, I'm highlighting it here in the intro because every now and then there's a question surface or some sort of dust up on social media about why general officers don't throw their rank on down on the table and resign over protest over bad ideas. Well, Lieutenant General Newbold did that, and he talks about it in this episode. So I'll also post some links to the articles that highlight at a greater detail that whole time in, in his career and some of the press surrounding his re- protest resignation. But with that, welcome, Lieutenant General Retired Greg Newbold. This is an honor for me, sir, because while I wasn't on your mew, I did serve in Somalia. So I've known your name for a long time. Thank God you never knew my name when I was a lieutenant. Probably would have spelled a lot of trouble for young First Lieutenant Dave Armstrong. But I do have to say that I'm happy that our mutual friend Mark Zinner introduced us. So a shout out to Mark here on the pod for facilitating this conversation with someone who I consider to be an epic leader from my youth. You are known for your rapier wit and your extremely good sense of humor. And I know we're going to talk about your time as a lieutenant and your time as a captain, but I want to start out by asking you a question that may seem trivial to you, but listeners love it, which is, 
Will you recall and recount the moment that you either got a phone call or something, however you found out that you had been selected for Brigadier General? And my follow-up question is going to be, were you surprised or did you kind of think that you had a pretty good chance of, of getting that star? It's a great question, Dave. What I'd like to do first, though, is thank you for having me on and reminding you that if this does not go well, you can blame Mark Zinner, who owes me money, by the way. That's the only reason he recommended me. That guy's been on the run for 30 years. <laughs> well, as long as Mark had been listening, I would just say that he was one of the finest officers that worked for me. A fine Marine, fine gentleman. As to your question about how I learned that I'd been selected for Brigadier, it was in a very unfair way. Traditionally, you find out when the Commandant of the Marine Corps calls you. I had worked just before the assignment I was in for the Secretary of the Navy. And the Secretary of the Navy, of course, reviews the results of the board and called me one afternoon and said, congratulations, you've been selected. And I thanked him, but what I really felt was how inappropriate. It's the not only responsibility, but the duty and the honor of the Commandant of the Marine Corps to call the newly selected brigadiers. And it goes beyond his role in notification to the way in which he conveys it beyond the congratulations. There's a message that he ought to pass on about responsibility, duty, anybody else could have been selected, etc. So I said it was inappropriate, but perfectly typical for the secretary that I worked for. And was I surprised? Absolutely, I was surprised. And to be very sincere about it, Dave, I didn't think about it. I didn't weigh my chances, compare myself to peers, etc. I learned greater in greater depth later at what I suspected at the time. It's an absolute crapshoot. It depends on who's on your board, whether they've known you before in positive or negative ways. So literally, it was not something you could spend time on. And I did. Uh, I had planned to get out as a, a lieutenant, had planned to get out as a lieutenant colonel, took a career transition course and uh, stuck around. So the fact that I was selected for Brigadier General was a very great surprise to me. I considered it both an honor and a surprise. That's a great story. As soon as you started telling it, my first reaction was, geez, I didn't know the Secretary of the Navy called people. I always thought it was the Commandant as well. But I always like to ask that question because especially to people who probably got that call well before cell phones were as ubiquitous as they are and caller ID and were you surprised? Would you just pick up the phone and say hello or did you know it was him calling or did they prep you for it or did a secretary say please hold the line for the secretary of the navy how did that it's just interesting in the old days without technology well it was a landline a home phone and i picked it up and the secretary was on the line and i hadn't worked for him for six months or something so it was a surprise and a surprise he didn't have somebody patch me into him because that was more his style. And he notified me and I thanked him, but I didn't tell my family because as I said, it, I didn't think it was appropriate that I found out from him. So I waited until the then Commandant General Kulak called to give it official notification. And the family was shocked. <laughs> You know, I, I look back on my own career and, well, as it was a career, and all of my friends that I got commissioned with are either out 
or their generals. And so when I ask them privately, what did you think your chances were of getting promoted? Everybody answers the same. They say, oh, I didn't think I had a very good chance. But it's just kind of interesting to hear what people's reaction was and did they think they were going to pick it up? I've actually had one person say, I knew I was going to, well, it was a Navy officer and he was a special warfare community. So maybe he had a little bit more insight into his career, but he was the only one that said, um, if I decide to stay in, I'll, I will become an admiral. Other than that, everybody's very humble and downplays it. But I, I remain unconvinced that any of my friends didn't think they had a shot at it. I think they're all lying to me because they're all such great officers. And I respect them so much that they must have taken a look in the mirror and say, I think I've got a pretty good shot at this. So that's why I like asking that question just to find out what it was like the day that you got called. I don't know if you ever came across Lieutenant General Dennis Crowell, who recently retired. He and I know each other from ROTC in college, and we have a friendship. I don't see him very often. But the last time I saw him, I asked him, what was it like when and you got the call that you were going to get promoted to general. He said, I was out fly fishing and I had my cell phone in my waiters and I didn't think I was going to get selected. And the cell phone rings. I noticed it was a number that had a high probability of coming from Pentagon. I picked it up and I got the call from the commandant as I was standing in the middle of a fly fishing river with my fly rod in my hand. And uh, I thought, you know, I like that story. I'm going to ask everybody that story that I meet that was a general. So thanks for sharing your story. One of the first things that I tried to do was to see who didn't get selected. Not to gloat at all, but there's a very painful part of it when you leave people behind that you hold in such very high regard. It's painful and you feel guilty. There's a bit of survivor guilt in the moment. A good officer will wonder why they made it and somebody else didn't. I can imagine. I can look at the statistics of what the selection rate is like on that board, and you just know that when you are a an 06 with a successful career and have done everything that you're supposed to do and didn't do any of the things that you aren't supposed to do, I don't know what happens on those boards and how they can select from so many qualified and outstanding people, because at that point, the cream has really risen to the top. And I don't know if you ever served on a selection board for generals, but that selection process is probably as painful for the people who are conducting it as it is for the people who are receiving the bad news because it must be very hard to select from a pool of such qualified people. One anecdote of that, since I did serve in a number of selection boards, when the pyramid narrows that much, whether it's for command screening or for selection for promotion, I'm going to invent the hypothetical. Let's say that you were selecting eight for general officers that year as they did in the year I was selected. And there are nine members of the selection board. There might be 20 officers that get all 9-0 votes. Unanimous recommendation for selecting Brigadier General. And then the pairing down begins. And with each round, as the number goes down, it becomes more and more painful because each officer in that hypothetical 20 is fully qualified. And human nature gets into it. And that is that members of selection board have their own biases or preferences, or you may have worked with somebody or been alongside somebody that thought highly of you or thought the complete reverse. So it isn't just a selection based on merit, because if it was, in my hypothetical example, there would have been 20 or 25 people selected. And all it takes is one of those board members in the initial round to say, no, in an 8-1 vote, that officer's name doesn't go into the next round. Does it always have to be unanimous or will people get selected on an 8-1 vote? I've never heard of that happening. 
there are just too many supremely qualified. Now, developing that answer a bit, sometimes it'll be obvious that one person is not in favor of the selection, and there will be discussion and debate. And if it's a compelling argument by others of the eight that voted in favor, then the one may concede, or by dint of the information they've heard, they may say, okay, now I understand. I was uh, voting no based on what I thought about this. For example, aviators may not appreciate what job assignments are for ground officer or logistics officer, as examples, or vice versa. And for example, a ground officer may not appreciate that being assigned as an aircraft maintenance officer in a squadron is a duty of very high responsibility and screen for selection to that. So once they hear of job performance as an AMO, the ground officer may say, now I get it. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing some of that about the behind the curtain with the general officers. I think there's always some mystique to it, and it's always interesting to hear somebody's perspective on it. But now I want to rewind way back in time, and I want to talk about Lieutenant Newbold. And I know from a previous conversation that you and I had offline that you want to talk about Captain Newbold as well. Our offline conversation started when we were talking about Mark Zinner, and I said how I'm still such good friends with all of my lieutenant friends, and we really established a bond that has endured over 30 years of testing and time and distance. And you had shared that your captain time was much more challenging than your lieutenant time. But I would like to hear about Lieutenant Newbold. I know you were commissioned in 1970. So we're talking about walking in front of an infantry platoon with, at the end, but still going, Vietnam War. What was that like? Well, the basic school was different those days, particularly for an infantry house. Everybody went through the same curriculum and everybody graduated at the same time. And I and my contemporaries were beamed out to the 1st Marine Division, which had just come out of cadre at the time from being a brigade to a titular Marine Division. But there were only three really active battalions in the division when I arrived. I was assigned to uh, be an 81 Mortar Platoon Commander. And it's daunting enough to be put into a uh, leadership position in a platoon which contained a lot of Vietnam veterans. But also, since the base school at that time did a very poor job of familiarizing you you with the different weapon systems, I was not ready to command an 81 mortar platoon. I learned a lot of uh, acronyms at the basic school, but my favorite one was Dilly Clap, which stood for Do I Look Like I Could Lead a Platoon? Oh, wow. That's a good one. That reflected what we thought about our ability to do that with confidence and professionally. The platoon, I later learned, was such a ragtag bunch that other Marines in the battalion wouldn't walk by our gunshed because they knew that 81 Mortars was a bunch of thugs. But at any rate, looking back on it, I consider that I did a mediocre job, but the platoon somehow performed in spite of me, and I survived the uh, first tour. I moved from 81 Mortars up to be a company executive officer, and there were some very fine lieutenants and some good captains. Uh, You would have expected that the war-hardened senior leaders would have been particularly good at mentoring us, but four of my first battalion commanders were relieved 
So that wasn't the case. But I also worked for Medal of Honor winner and who was a company commander, former enlisted. The S3, when I was in the battalion, was also a Medal of Honor winner. So there were some role models and some mentors and both positive and negative examples in that very formative period. And as most on this podcast will know, the early 70s was a very, very rough time in the Marine Corps. Yeah, I've heard that, obviously, both in interviewing and offline. Obviously, listeners will revolt if I do not ask you who those Medal of Honor winners were that you worked with. Uh, my company commander, who's actually my second company commander, was a John J. McGinty, who as a staff sergeant won the Medal of Honor for very worthy actions as the rear guard of a battalion. He was an acting platoon commander and then received a direct commission. And he was a guy of incredibly great talents and incredibly great immorality. So I learned from both. That must have been amazing to have a company commander who was a Medal of Honor winner. I just, I can't even close my eyes and imagine that. Well, there was certainly the respect that has to come with that, particularly after hearing his stories and reading the citation. But my lessons from him were more on the level of that you can achieve much more than you think you can and never, ever respect obstacles that are put in your way by routine or bureaucratic people. And he was able to achieve incredible things because he really had a Dunny's mentality about scrounging, which in those days were absolutely necessary to take care of your Marines. So you would browbeat us into not accepting what we were told by organizational bureaucracy, and it was a good lesson. Who was the second Medal of Honor winner? The other Medal of Honor winner, the S-3, was later Major General Jim Livingston. And he was preceded as S-3 by a Navy Cross winner, an incredibly impressive officer named Gordon Batchelor, major at the time, retired as a colonel, but Yale football player, but one of the brightest officers I was ever around. And he was very patient and mentoring me as well. That must have been amazing to, and probably somewhat intimidating. But I come back to the question that I really like asking is, what were some of the things that you learned in those first five years? And I'll even ask you more along your lieutenant time, but please include some captain time too. What were some of the lessons that you learned from those men, in addition to what you just described as the, you know, you can achieve more than you think you can and how to overcome obstacles? And what were some other lessons that you can share with young emerging leaders in today's military that you learned from those men and your experiences during that time? Well, some of the things I'll come up with are obvious to any Marine officer listening to this. I learned that what the Marines respected was when you really tried hard to learn your job and used that knowledge to perform not just in your job, but to take care of them. So when a young Marine had trouble with pay or allotments in a brand new family or was in trouble of some kind, and 
you developed enough knowledge to assist the Marine. They regarded that as one of the premier qualities of a young officer. To expand that, I think just learning as much as you can about the art and science of your job was very, very important. I did an immense amount of reading during those first years in the Marine Corps to learn about tactics and operations, but also about how to perform your job in an expanded sense. In those days, we had company-level administration, and I was XO several times, and I learned how to take care of Marines administratively, which includes things like pay and etc. And the more I learned about that, the more I was better to take care of. The more I learned about mortars, uh, I'm going to expand the anecdote a little bit. When I was a captain after completing what was then AWS, our EWS, I was assigned to the 2nd Marine Division, and I was brought in initially as the S3 Alpha, the regiment, and waited until I could take over my company. But I did. I moved down and took over Delta 1A because we had four maneuver companies in a battalion then. At the very same time, another captain took over a different company. He was a very sharp officer, came out of the Naval Academy. I'd gone to AWS. He'd gone to the Advanced Army Infantry Course. He'd been to 8th and I. And I had a completely unfair advantage over him because by that time, I had had a platoon. I had been an XO twice with company-level admin. I'd been an S4 Alpha twice. I'd taught tactics at the basic school. I'd learned motor transport and missile operations. And as S3, I'd been S3 Alpha twice. And I I had that short stint as S3 off of 8th Marines. I learned about the training areas and training priorities, etc where he had been beamed in from Fort Benning after a long tour of duty of the 8th and I. And he had none of those experiences. So he learned almost by braille and stumbled into things. I was extraordinarily lucky to be the beneficiary of learning by my own mistakes and by the good lessons of others' performance. So I was much more rounded. It's expanding on the comment I made about knowledge being critical. Another observation I have from the early years is it's important to be a strong leader, but to be meticulously fair and to broadcast standards ahead of times, expectations, so that there are no surprises, and to apply that so that the Marines would know what was expected of them and would be more willing to comply. I also had a lot of respect for the competent staff NCOs and NCOs at that time. And I, like other Marine officers, had no hesitation in asking them how they viewed the problem or the situation. And that was very helpful to me. The Sergeant Major of that 1st Battalion was a terrific Marine. And I would go to him and say, okay, I've got this situation. What do you think I ought to do? Humility is a good quality in a young officer. Not weakness, but humility. And I learned that Marines aren't looking for friends. They're looking for leaders and managers who can take care of them and will do the best to accomplish the mission. I'll stop there, Dave, and see if you have any other questions about that. Thanks. I do have a few questions. You mentioned how great the Sergeant Major was in the 1st Battalion. So I'm thinking you're 1970 when you got commissioned. What was that Sergeant Major's experience like? Was he a Korean War vet? Was he must have had a couple tours in Vietnam? I'm curious about his background before I formulate my next question. He was promoted to Sergeant Major very early, if my memory is correct, after 16 years in the Marine Corps. And he had been an infantry Marine and a Vietnam veteran 
several times, but he hadn't been long enough at that time to be a, a Korean vet. But my first sergeant, Anthony F. Byrd, had been a Korean vet and had gone to study in the Jesuit ministry. Extremely bright, tough, but a good sense of humor, immensely respected by the Marines, and a great mentor to me. And when I was S3 Alpha in the 3rd Marine Division of a battalion, the master sergeant who was our ops chief was a World War II veteran. And one of my regrets in the Marine Corps is I, I didn't say, Master Sergeant, I'm going to rent a car and on a Sunday, let's drive around Okinawa and tell me where you served in that battle and what your thoughts were. So while I tried to listen and be mentored by the great leaders that I was around, I didn't always take best advantage of it. I think that just may be a function of youth, sir, because I look back on my first battalion, I had a sergeant major who was a Vietnam vet, and I never asked him a single question about his Vietnam experience. One of my regrets wasn't taking advantage of some of the experiences that the senior men in my battalions when I was younger had. I probably could have learned a lot more. The reason I ask that question about the sergeant major, and I'm glad you brought up the master sergeant and the first sergeant, is because I think one of the things that current emerging leaders are, I'm not going to search for better words, I'm just going to say concerned about or worried about, they don't, they come out of TBS or even you know, corporal's course. And a lot of people right now don't have a lot of combat experience if they're under the five-year mark. And I think I'll just say a lieutenant is going to leave IOC, take over a platoon where a lot of the senior NCOs, certainly the staff NCOs and the senior staff NCOs in the battalion are going to look a lot like the senior enlisted that you just described from you coming in in 1970 and kind of being in the same position. I'm wondering if you can reflect back on that time where you were a new lieutenant with no combat experience and you're funny, the acronym about, you know, do I look like I can lead a platoon? And here you come in, second lieutenant Newbold. Do you have any advice for those young leaders who don't have combat experience and are worried about leading a platoon or leading any, a fire team even, or a squad? where they don't have that combat experience, but some of the enlisted leaders or even other officers do have combat experience. And how do they overcome some of that apprehension? Well, number one, there's nothing they can do about it you know, to change the situation. So just being fairly taciturn about it can be helpful. Initial impressions are important. To give an example, my brother was an infantry Marine in Vietnam, corporal wounded a couple of times, incredibly good Marine, then later came back in commissioned. I learned a great deal from him, and I can tell you, when he stepped in front of uh, his first platoon, they were not filled with Vietnam veterans, certainly not of the junior ranks, but when they first sized him up and saw his uh, awards, particularly the Purple Hearts, he started in advantage. And I'm sure he proved after that uh, that it was well merited. But for those that don't have uh, the wartime experience, initial impressions uh, might be on the part of the Marines, staff NCOs or junior Marines, that you have to prove yourself. But so what? You know, competence over time and a little humility will go a long way because in the end, what the Marines are looking for is all the traits that they've heard of and studied in the Marine Corps, and that is decisive leadership, professional competence, compassion, 
you know, sense of humor, I think, is important. And as I said before, they're not looking for friends. They're looking for people that will take care of the mission, take care of them, and will be scrupulously honest. There's no, no quicker way to uh, lose respect to Marines, whatever your ribbon rack, than to be deceitful or perceived to be. I agree. I do. I look at today's force and I think, while the combat experience can be that one person has can be intimidating to somebody who doesn't have combat experience. A couple of guests in the past have noted that just because you have experience in Iraq or even Afghanistan doesn't necessarily mean that that experience will translate one for one to a future fight, say, in the Pacific or even to create an imaginary scenario. If for some reason a platoon commander was in the Ukraine right now fighting, those tactics, those experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan don't necessarily mean that those tactics and experiences are 100% applicable to any situation that could be found in a future fight. And I agree with you, the humility, I'll use the word empathy as well, are important to Marines because I think when a Marine looks at a leader, and I don't mean a corporal looking at a lieutenant, I'm including that, but it could be a lieutenant looking at a battalion commander. It could be a battalion commander looking at a division commander. When we look up into our chain of command, I think what we want to see is, do I trust this person to have the tactical and technical skills necessary to make good decisions coupled with the intelligence and the ability to make good, smart decisions that will increase the lethality of a unit and decrease the probability of taking a lot of casualties. That's what we all want to look at in a leader is, do I trust them to lead me in a dangerous situation because I appreciate their decision-making process coupled with their experience and their technical and tactical knowledge? Which leads me into my next question. I'm wondering if you can reflect back, and I'm still in your captain and before time, Were there any really great lessons that you learned through what you would consider to be at that time the worst leader you had seen on either side of the fence, either enlisted or officer? Absolutely, Dave. As I mentioned, four of my first five battalion commanders were relieved, and I had a company commander who was later kicked out of the Marine Corps. Not a great role model. Uh, one battalion commander was relieved for just absolute incompetence after uh, what we then called a tack test. Now I'm a crass. One was relieved for alcoholism. Another because we had a series of riots in the uh, battalion overseas. Another one was uh, relieved after 29 Palms evolution, justifiably so. And the one battalion commander who wasn't of those first five and never made colonel, but was a tremendous leader and mentor. So I had positive and negative examples galore. And same thing with staff and CEOs. And I like to think that I was able to pick and choose the examples I wanted to follow. But a sea change occurred after, for context, I was in the 1st Marine Division initially and then was assigned to the 3rd Marine Division. Since I wasn't a regular officer at that time, prior to my EAS, I was assigned to uh, Quantico and was sent out to TBS to be a tactics instructor, where I received my regular commission. Out there, I had incredible role models, absolutely superior 
officers of every grade. And they taught me more about how to lead and how to represent the kind of officer that you should be. Some of them I'm still in touch with nearly daily. I knew I couldn't be like them, but I thought I could do a better job of being a Marine officer by approaching their example. Not a mirror image, but just in my own way, trying to be better. And the other thing about being a TVS was that the role and whatever assignment you have and the responsibility to represent something to the lieutenants was an important hurdle for me because you had to be, I believed, immaculate in appearance, immaculate in fitness, immaculate in demeanor, you know, completely knowledgeable about what you're trying to convey when you're teaching, etc. And I did a voracious amount of reading at the time, so I would better understand operations and tactics. And I became a much better officer as a result of that experience, both from feeling the responsibility and having those role models. Can you recall and share a story of one time when you were at TBS where you looked at another officer and said, I want to emulate that person? Can you tell a story about that person? Absolutely. Multiple times. Uh, very early, I was in the, as a tactics instructor, I was put beside a, uh, a captain named Sam Garland, who, as a matter of fact, became a poster Marine, but was the very epitome of what a Marine officer should look like and act like. Former enlisted, had been uh, involved in very special operations and two Vietnam tours, had been a DI, but no strut and swagger about him. He let his personal demeanor convey everything that you needed to know, and obviously deeply knowledgeable and professional. But right after that, tactics group was joined by uh, another captain named Vic Taylor, who some of the listeners may recall was the founder of the Infantry Officers Course. And Vic Taylor was a mirror image of this guy, Sam Garland, you know, just incredibly professional and, you know, striking in appearance and just wonderful, wonderful officer. Now, as I said, I couldn't be a Sam Garland or a Vic Taylor, but it uh, couldn't help but make me mature and try to improve some of the things I was doing. But in the tactics group, at that time, we had, uh, I think, four Navy Cross winners and a number of Silver Star winners, and they certainly knew their job, and a number of them were former enlisted, and a number of them went on to become general officers. So I was a veritable gomer pile, you know, just <laughs> awestruck by, by these officers. And we also had some superior lieutenant colonels. We had the first CO of the base school when I was there was the most distinguished officer I think I've been around. And, you know, I was just an awe. The second one went on to be, I think, a major general. He might have made lieutenant general, and he was not a role model. So I'd like to think that I had the benefit of being a sponge to both the positive and the negative. And as I've said, I matured a lot because I had to if I was going to be credible with the lieutenants. Right. I'm still in your captain-lieutenant time. I know senior leaders, especially somebody who achieves the rank of lieutenant general, is pretty humble about themselves, and I classify you as being a humble person as well. So this next question could be a little bit difficult, but I'm going to ask you to try to be as honest with me as you can. But do you remember the very first time that you just looked at yourself in the mirror and you were really proud of yourself as a Marine Corps officer? My first answer off the top of my head is I don't recall a moment like that. I do recall being pleased with the performance of a unit, whether it was the infantry company I had or the infantry battalion I was honored to command or the Marine Expeditionary Unit from our performance in Somalia. 
But Dave, I'm serious. I don't recall ever saying, boy, I did well. I think, at least in my case, that would have been really arrogant. But just to elaborate on those, when I was the S3 Alpha of that regiment as a captain, the regimental commander called me in and he said, I know you want a company and I'm going to give you one, but I'm still trying to decide which one it is. And I warmed to the notion because I had already picked out one I wanted to follow this really good company commander. And he said, I'm trying to decide which is the worst company in the regiment, which made my heart sink then. And it turned out to be pretty easy decision for him because it was a company in which the troops had tried to burn down the company commander's office and there were 120 requests massed in one day. (laughs) Jeez. So I was lucky the unit could only go up from there. So that was the experience. The battalion's pleasure came from our performance in Norway. The Marines in the early years had a very tough time competing in the winter Arctic exercises, and I had participated in three of them and on the three winter cycles, and on the fourth one, I was a battalion commander. And it was literally a case of, okay, big boy, you've been critical about how the Marines have done in the past. Now it's on your shoulders. And the battalion performed very well. I had some great company commanders, and we had some luck on our side, and the unit did extremely well. And in those cases, you know, it was clear to me that unity of effort by a lot of important people made the performance what it was. I think anybody listening to this that is a captain who's just coming out of expeditionary warfare school and is lining themselves up to take command of a company or a battery or any other captain level command, none of them, none of them are walking into a situation where a company has had their company office burned to the ground with 138 request masks. <laughs> so I have to ask some questions about that. When you walk in, what was the first thing that you thought to yourself, okay, I have to get control of XYZ and start from there. I just can't even imagine walking into a command like that, nor can anybody listening to this who's on active duty right now. Nobody's walking into a command like that. But can you recall, did you grab your first sergeant and say, we've got to fix this? Was the first sergeant part of the problem? What was your analysis of the situation in your first order of fixing this? I remember when I was told by the regimental commander which company I was going to have, and I, of course, at the regimental level, we were monitoring what was going on. There were other problems that I haven't recounted. And I came back in the regimentalist three shop and sat down loudly. <laughs> and across from me was a much more seasoned captain who was our artillery liaison. And as you know, Dave, those artillery officers are very wise, sage individuals. Well, I appreciate you finally being the first person to admit that on this podcast. Thank you very much. Well, I got the email that you sent that said I should include that, so I did. Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) He said, look, don't worry about it. Be yourself. Go down there. Just do the job you know you can. And the company always performs to the character of their commander. So just do the job the best you know how, which was very good advice. I went down there and found that most of the lieutenants were excellent, as were, as far as I can recall, all of the staff and COs. The first sergeant was very polished and completely out of his element in an infantry company because he was a crash, fire, and rescue MOS. And I had the fortune of being able to create the training schedule myself. And they hadn't gone to the field much. 
And uh, it's my opinion that Marines like to do things that are Marinely. So the first thing I did was took him to the field for a week. And we started out with classes on scouting and patrolling and then moved into a competitive situation where the four platoons were put in distant locations and were made to operate against each other. And, you know, they had to find the other platoons and attack or defend, etc. And just being in the field and getting dirty and sweaty and fighting snakes and their peers made them feel good about being themselves. And then we marched back in quite a ways. And at the end of the hike, I had a Jeep and trailer full of uh, beer and soda. And, you know, we were filthy, but relaxed and, you know, stood around and had a good time and swore and exaggerated and chided and felt good about being Marines. And as I said, the great benefit I had was having been exposed to everything from motor tea and the chow hall and, you know, training areas and et cetera. To when uh, the company had duties or responsibilities, I was able to talk to people in the S-4 in a way that got us some pathways that were easier. And we competed in uh, 29 Palms exercise and, and did well. And the more we succeeded, the uh, better Marines felt about themselves. And we went on a Mediterranean deployment and that went well. And it was just an incremental improvement of the company and empowering some very good people, lieutenants and staff and CEOs, and some corporals that were just looking to be recognized for their abilities and given duties commensurate with that. And as I sit here, I've got in front of me several things on the wall, but one of them is a promotion citation where the company first sergeant, the second one, who was incredible Marine, made me a, a non-commissioned officer, you know, meritoriously because of the duties and responsibilities and the authorities I put down on the NCOs. And that's, I don't have any promotion warrants. Uh, I don't have things like that, but I do have that in front of me because it's great an honor as I've been given. That was sort of an honorary yes. promotion citation to non-commissioned officer for you as an officer. Yes. Right. I'll tell you what, if I had something like that, that would be on my wall too. That is about as high of an honor as I could ever imagine getting as an officer. And I'm sure you're very proud of that. And thanks for sharing that. You mentioned that you took the company on and you did a field exercise of 29 Palms. And you had mentioned before that you had a battalion commander who was relieved during an exercise of 29 Palms. Was that the same exercise where your company did really well, but the battalion commander didn't do very well? Yes. It may be difficult to believe this story, but it's true. Of course, I had been a tactics instructor and I'd been to amphibious warfare school and had learned so much from others. So I went out there fully prepared, as was the company. And my fellow company commanders were very good. I'm still in touch with them and I have great respect for them. The battalion commander, on the other hand, during the 29 Palms exercise, didn't wear a uniform. He wore PT shorts and a PT shirt, and he and his driver went around, let's say, the Delta Corridor out of 29 Palms, so he could use his camera to take photographs of uh, flora and fauna that he, he could find. And the XO, who's a real pro, tried hard to uh, manage the battalion, and the S3 was a good man, but tactics weren't his forte. We did the best we could. The performance of the battalion overall was very poor, and the the word got back to the division CG who took care of business. But there were some odd stories in those days, but we had leaders on every part of the sine wave, and he was one of those near the bottom. By the way, he changed his MOS after being relieved. 
Oh, well, it sounds like he probably changed his MOS to civilian, but yeah. I'm surprised you can be relieved as a battalion commander and still have the opportunity to change your MOS. I don't know if you can do that these days. But, you know, here's what I took away from Esther listening to that story is that I'm constantly reminded in the conduct of these podcasts and in the conduct of my daily life running a business that has nothing to do with the military, that performance is one of those leadership traits that isn't named. Right. It's one of those as a leader, we have our leadership traits and principles, but performance is one of the ones that isn't distinctly stated in those. But I feel like if you're a leader, officer and enlisted, and all you do is perform at the highest level you're capable of, everything else going on around you, whether it's good or bad, is irrelevant to your performance because it's that saying cream rises to the top and it's maybe a little bit overused. But I truly believe that if every leader just focuses on their own performance, everything else could be moot. And here is my data point for you that makes me know this is true. You took over a company where the company office was burned to the ground. There's got to be a funny story there, but <laughs> uh, maybe it's not funny. But you take over a company that had riots and the company office gets burned to the ground. You go out on an exercise. Your company performs very well inside of a battalion where the battalion commander is wearing PT gear out in the field and got relieved. And you went on to become a battalion commander and eventually a MU commander. That's my data point that proves to me that performance is really the most important thing that a young leader can focus on. And I'm going to assume that you agree with that. And if you've got some amplifying thoughts or commentary on that, I would love to hear it. Well, I do. First of all, I agree with you, Dave, but I would like to amplify in one respect. We were either fortunate or unfortunate in who we work for and who works for us. And sometimes an officer performing at a very high level works for another officer who has no regard for them. So exemplary performance or performance at a very high level may not be enough to single you out for the best jobs or optimal promotion opportunities. But what I would say is that an officer should set performance as the immediate objective, but also that they ought to be satisfied with that because they can't do anything about the other factors. I worked for a regimental commander who he and I were not on speaking terms. I worked for others that I know didn't really buy my act, but I was fortunate that they didn't punish me too badly or that the next senior officer rating me made amplifying remarks on a fitness report. But if as an officer, you believe you're doing a very good job and doing the best you can and are being faithful to the principles of the Marine Corps, then that ought to be the most important thing. I've had good friends that were very disappointed that they didn't get the next promotion, particularly to a general officer from regular general to major general. And easy for me to say, or you might conclude, but I was always disappointed with that because we really can't control the roll of the dice and not just on promotions and assignments, but on who we work for or who works for us. So be satisfied doing the very best you can and achieving the most that a unit can. I agree. And you're right that performance may not be enough to help a leader achieve the next level, but it has to be the immediate objective for the leader because you truly can't control what you can't control, but you can control your performance. Yes. And to a certain extent, you can definitely control the performance of the men and women that you're leading at that moment in your life. And But what I will say is if you don't perform, that is 
definitely something that is going to keep you from obtaining the next level of promotion. So you have to perform. Yes. And that's what I've been taking away from a lot of this. I know I can hear people screaming through their podcast players now that they will want me to jump right in from what you just said into your time as the director of operations on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but I'm not going to jump there yet because I do want to talk about your time as a battalion commander and then more specifically, your time as a MU commander, because that was a pretty significant moment in national history with your MU. But before we jump to that, I would like to hear a little bit of your thoughts on your time and some of the lessons that you learned as a battalion commander. And I'm wondering if during that time, can you reflect back and recall a time where as a leader, you actually did something wrong? And do you remember how that misstep was handled by your command or your commanding officer? I'm not sure we have enough time to cover all the things I did wrong, Dave. <laughs> I can always have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm afraid the attention span of you and others would disappear. Yeah, there were some exciting times when I was a battalion commander. I took it over right before Thanksgiving, which led to the Thanksgiving 96. This is 2nd Marine Division now, the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. And in early January, we had to fly out to Bridgeport for a month at the Mountain Warfare Training Center. My predecessor, who shall go unnamed, had done nothing to prepare the battalion for that evolution. And as many on the podcast will know, that's not an evolution you approach lightly. And you have to be very physically fit, particularly with hiking, marching with heavy pack loads to adjust as best you can for that environment at that altitude. But we had very little time because after Thanksgiving, uh, we went into a Christmas leave period and then came back and loaded up and flew out. We spent very few days in the base camp, something like four or five acclimating to the altitude, and then had to hike up uh, to Wolf Creek Pass on a day that the wind chill was uh, minus 50. And that was quite a hike for all of us with the load. And we had something like four Marines who had to be evacuated. Later learned that the super chilled air that we were bringing in caused some freezing of lungs and throat. But the word got back to Camp Lejeune, to the wives network, et cetera, that, you know, in typically exaggerated fashion, the battalion had had a really terrible uh, experience and horrendous number of uh, medevacs, et cetera. But in fact, we uh, did very well out at Bridgeport and went through that evolution successfully. Came back to Camp Lejeune and a very fine supply officer that I inherited and his wife were murdered a couple of days after I got back by one of our Marines. So that was a bit of an experience. And of course, you deal with that with the entire battalion so they understand the situation and, and move on because we were back very briefly before we went to Fort McCoy in Wisconsin and then over to Norway for the final month. All these uh, were very challenging, and there were a number of uh, events which required agility and adaptation and very fine small unit leadership. The performance on the major exercise over there went extremely well because I had inventive company commanders, and uh, including a, an Amtrak unit leader who uh, set up an ambush of the Royal 
Royal Marines, it was legendary. So by the time we got back, uh, the trials and tribulations of Bridgeport and Fort McCoy and Wisconsin and the month in the Arctic uh, became a matter of pride and a crucible that we had gone through. And in Okinawa, we spent the first month there, but then three months in uh, the Philippines, and then a final month and a half in Okinawa before we flew back. But we had some challenges in the Philippines, but you know, we had some very good people below us and very good people above us, and they believed that the battalion had performed well. And we went back to the States and had bragging rights. And when you give Marines bragging rights, because they've endured very tough circumstances and perform well through it, then the unit begins to carry itself. You set standards that are high, they meet and exceed those, and then they can march to Moscow in the winter. I think that's an excellent point. I do think that the connection between leadership, hard and realistic training that results in bragging rights, there's a journey there of you know, why are we doing this? This is terrible. I'm miserable. This is hard. I'm, I'm boiling it down. But people think this, hopefully in silence. <laughs> and then when you come out on the other side, the award that you get is the bragging rights. And what a lot of people don't understand early on in their careers, those bragging rights tend to be stories that you tell, like you just told yours. Those bragging rights are important to people. They just don't realize it when it's happening. But it is incumbent upon the leaders to make sure that they're creating that hard and realistic training that results in those bragging rights. Because I think the thing that you said that resonated with me and I wrote it down was the unit will carry itself after hard training that results in the bragging rights. And I just wanted to punctuate that because I do think that, that is an important takeaway from from your vignette there. I do want to come back and ask, during some of those challenging times that you had as a battalion commander, what were some of your conversations like with your regimental commander? Because he must have come and said to you at some point, hey, Greg, I wasn't really happy with that. Or maybe he didn't even call you by your first name because he was so mad at you. Do you have some recollections of maybe some ass chewings? And I find it to be an important question because mistakes and lessons learned by senior leaders when they relay them and tell them to an audience, they just resonate because they're relatable. Everybody's had their attitude. And so I just wonder if you could share a moment and how that make you feel? And can you share a lesson learned there? I'll give two anecdotes in connection with that. Regimental commander accompanied us on the uh, the deployment to Fort McCoy, Wisconsin, because it was considered a higher headquarters. And there, actually, for a time there, there were two battalions there, and we ended it with a field exercise against several battalions from the 82nd Airborne. In that exercise, the regimental commander apparently hadn't gotten much sleep, and uh, he called me back to his CP to go over orders he wanted to give for disposition of the battalions. And he was absolutely incoherent. On one phrase, he would say, okay, be aggressive. I want you to be agile and be prepared to move up and so on and so forth. And before even finish the sentence, he would transition to fall back and, you know, give ground. And and I'm not really given the depth of the confusion, but believe me, it it was really incoherent. And I was probably also uh, pretty tired by that time. And I challenged him on it. I told him, you're, Colonel, you're not making sense. You're saying this, 
but you're also saying this. Now, I can do one of them, but I can't do both. And we had this interchange there that was fairly lively, um, but we both left uh, being pretty grumpy. We went over to Norway, and, you know, I have to say that Battalion really was extraordinarily fortunate, and the performance by the uh, company commanders was terrific. And uh, we went up against Royal Marines and the Dutch Marines, who were considered the, the masters of Arctic ops. We were supposed to be in the defense, and we got credit for destroying more companies than they put in the field. And, you know, it was just extraordinary. So we finished the exercise, and we were in a base camp going through the hot wash up and cleaning up the gear and preparing for the return to uh, the United States. And the regimental commander set the order for return to the United States. And it was all higher headquarters and administrative units. And uh, the last ones out were in the battalion. And of course, we were just finishing the third month of winter deployments. And some of the other units had only gone on to one for a month. And I thought that was unfair. And I told them that, that it really would be fairer if the Marines would go back first, the Marines that had been so long deployed. And in that case, my habit was to always be the last one back. And I was that occasion too. But he disagreed with me completely and he left on his plane as the first one back. And we ultimately got back to Camp Lejeune, I don't know how much later, week, 10 days. And he greeted me at the Cherry Point, as was their habit. And uh, <laughs> we were both very grumpy, and he drove back in a sedan, and I drove back in a Humvee because I didn't want to ride with him. So sometimes uh, you stand up for what you think is right, and sometimes that hurts you, and sometimes it doesn't. And I guess for me, it didn't hurt too badly. He went on to be a major general, and I got even luckier. So that's my story. <laughs> I'll say. I want to fast forward to your time as the commanding officer for the 15th MU, and I'll start the questioning much like I started the podcast, which was, okay, I would think if they would ever let an artillery officer be a MU commander, I would have wanted to do that more than any other command I could have ever imagined having. So to me, having a MU command is about as exciting of a command that you can have at the 06 level as anything. And I'm curious what it was like when you found out that you'd been selected for that command of the 15th MU. Well, it's a good story, at least to me. I was serving on the Joint Staff as a very ordinary action officer, a completely tiny cog in a giant wheel. And I had taken the career transition course because I was planning to get out. I had been selected for colonel, but I was pretty junior on that list. And the colonel's monitor called and left a message, which one of my fellow officers in the small branch took. But we were used to chiding each other and occasionally playing jokes on each other. And he left the note that... No way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't imagine that at all. He left a message that said, call your monitor important. And I knew it was a joke, so I threw it away. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from my monitor. I was still a lieutenant colonel. He was a colonel. I had known him from before and held him in high regard. But he called and I said, yes, sir. And he said, why the bleepity bleep haven't you returned my call? And I 
stuttered and drooled and hemmed and hawed and told him I, I didn't think it was real. And he said, well, it is. You've been selected to uh, command a Mew, and you've got to leave within a month. And I really found it very hard to believe. It was a real stunner. I uh, had been in Mews, but not a Mew sock. And it's very, very different uh, when we made the transition to special operations capable. So that was humbling. And I went out to Camp Pendleton and assumed command of 15th Mew. And a guy that assumed 11th Mew at the same time, a very close friend, later Commandant General Mike Hagee. We were both geographic bachelors, and I was able to watch what he did and learn from him because he went out earlier. And I had some very fine people on the staff. And it was all that you've portrayed it to be, Dave. And I'll highlight two of the many reasons. It's a MAGTAF. So while I wouldn't give up anything, to have been an infantry officer. Being in a MAGDAF and experiencing all that the Marine Corps has in aviation and logistics and all of the elements that the Marine Corps provides in a combat unit was educational and a source of uh, great pleasure for me. I really enjoyed being with the aviator captains who were all eager and chopping at the bit, aggressive, had a terrific logistics unit and was we're fortunate to have a good battalion commander. The other reason was that the MUSOC examination program had to meet very, very high standards. And it means that it's a no-nonsense training period and examination, self-examination and by others. And that meant that, you know, as you alluded to earlier, Dave, it creates some bragging rights when you perform to that high standard. And then a deployment, you get to become an even tighter organization and experience a great deal, which we did. I'd love to talk about the Mew a little bit. I'm specifically interested in your workups. I'm assuming there was no inclination that your participation in Restore Hope was going to happen. What were your workups like and what did you focus on there as a leader? Because I'm assuming it wasn't Somalia. No, the prevalent focus was on the Persian Gulf and all that could happen there. But for context, I joined 15th Mew right after a Desert Shield Desert Storm. And the Navy's participation in those operations created a high operational tempo. And the CNO decided that he was going to give the ships a break and the sailors, obviously. So they decided that our Mew would go out with only two ships instead of the traditional alignment when you had a... Uh, by the way, this is not with an LHA, LHD. This was with the old LPH, which was an immensely less capable platform. LPH, sure. I'm sorry, sir. For listeners who don't know, the LPH back then is not like the LPH now. There was no well deck. There were no Harriers on there. It was, as you said, an extremely limited platform. Precisely. Well said, Dave. That began a long battle between the Marine Corps and the Navy and with Pacific Command and the fleet out of San Diego battling over what we would have and what we wouldn't have. And we eventually got three ships and they agreed to trail behind us in the Western Pacific, an MPF ship, Maritime Prepositioning Force. But the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Monday, a magnificent Marine, 
said to the Navy, uh, well, then this will not be a MU because MUs don't go out with 500 fewer Marines. MUs don't go out with far less capable platforms. This will be a special purpose MAGDAF. And that's what we were, 15th special purpose MAGDAF, because he stood his ground and said, this will not become the norm. It's unacceptable. So we set sail with shorter in every capacity, some less in aviation, a good bit less in infantry battalion, some in logistics. I cut the MU headquarters. As you've pointed out, we didn't have Harriers. We didn't have some of the engineering equipment that could have been so important. When we got to the Western Pacific, as we started down through the Straits, we were alerted for a mission in Bangladesh because a cyclone was headed there, and there had been one previously that devastated the area. And the expectation was that it would happen again. And we were put on alert to go in there and provide humanitarian assistance and, you know, fresh water and engineering and whatever we could. I mentioned that because we ended up not going, but as a special purpose MAGTAF, we were far less capable of performing all of those tasks than a full of MU. So when that mission was canceled, we started heading for the Gulf, and then we got early notification that the situation in Somalia, the starvation, the desperate and horrific consequences on the population were making the news. And the first President Bush thought that was unacceptable is right in the new world order that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union and that the, the United States would perform in a beneficent role in a humanitarian operation. Now, in those days, an old platform like the USS Tripoli, the OPH, had really no modern communications. So we were unaware of what was going on in Somalia. And it was a surprise to us when we started getting uh, early alerts to perform a mission there. And the mission was changing daily. I maintained communications, secure communications with one MAF at Camp Pendleton, but I also had a good friend who was still on the Joint Staff in the Pentagon as the head of the current operations branch within J3. So late at night, I spent a lot of time on secure phone with one MIF and with my buddy in the uh, Pentagon, learning as much as we could. And I also called other people to find out as much as we could about Somalia. And the Commodore and I had a long conversation at his expense on in Marsat with a State Department official who had served in Somalia, because we had no maps of any detail and we have no idea who the various factions were and what the, quote, enemy could arm and equip themselves with. And uh, that became an interesting evolution, which you uh, joined us uh, shortly after we made the landing. Correct. I was in the Air Contingency Battalion, came over with 1-7 and 3-11, and I had attached the 3-11 with then Lieutenant Colonel Lesnowitz and was quickly attached over to 1-7. And of course, 3rd LAR was there with then Lieutenant Colonel Neller, and Colonel Buck Bedard was up in Baidoa somewhere. And I can't remember what his role was because I don't think the whole regiment ended up over there, but I know he was there. And Jack Klimp was already selected for Brigadier General, but he had the task force out of the stadium. And that's where I was working with. But I obviously came in after you. And I'm just curious because I know, so when I went out on my MU, it was with the New Orleans, which was also the same class as the Tripoli and the Tarawa. And you also had the USS Juno attached to your MU, I believe, correct, sir? Yes. 
We're doing. Right. So I deployed on the Juno after that on the 11th Mu in 95. So I'm familiar with the Juno. I also know the Juno was not equipped with current communications either because we never knew what was going on. But can you recall the moment when somebody must have come and knocked on your stateroom and said, we've got a situation you need to come somewhere. And do you recall what it was like the moment you found out you're going to execute an amphibious landing, essentially? I got a call from the chief of staff at one meth. They were long days. During daylight hours, I worked with the Mew in traditional fashion and the Febron. And then at night, I did all my communications back with the States. But the chief staff of 1MEF was a terrific officer. He had been up through the enlisted ranks and warrant officer ranks and then got commissioned and rose to colonel. And he said, look, you're on alert. The president is looking to commit you to Somalia. But the first mission or, or alert we received was for a really impossible thing which showed the shallowness of the uh, the understanding of Somalia. It, it asked us to uh, be prepared to conduct operations along the Somalia coast, which was something like 500 miles with this tiny special purpose MAGDEF. And then it changed to another one. You're going to go in and you're going to land in Mogadishu and wait for reinforcements. And, you know, and then some that would send us down to Kismayo. And so it changed daily in both the location and the complexity of the operation. But ultimately it was, you will land in Mogadishu, seize the port and airfield, and allow for the introduction of follow-on forces. That changed within hours of our landing to, you need to seize the embassy, former embassy as well. Of course, the map showed an embassy, U.S. embassy, on the waterfront, but those maps were wrong, and the embassy that had been abandoned a year before was uh, actually several months Miles Inland, you'll recall, Dave. I do. I was there. And we were supposed to uh, stay in Mogadishu, but within, and you'll recall, Lemieux at that time was doctrinally constrained to within 50 miles operation because that was the half-flight life of a CH-46. But within days, we were told, okay, mount up, you're going to Baidoa, which was 120 miles away. And at the same time, you're going to conduct the ships and your elements and your staff, your force recon, et cetera, will go down to Kismayu and make a landing there with the Belgians. And we had to leave elements, including the ACE and Mogadishu. So we went up to Baidoa, and that's when then Colonel Buck Bedard, who had Regimental Combat Team 7, came with AEVs up from Mogadishu to Baidoa stage briefly, and then went on to Bardera. And our job in Baidoa, after seizing Bali Dogo and going on to Baidoa, was to take control of the area to allow for humanitarian relief operations to be conducted. And then as that stabilized and the Australian unit took our place, we went back into Mogadishu and conducted patrolling operations in that beautiful downtown Mogadishu. Lovely. So I want to come back to maybe hear your experiences with the planning process where most listeners are familiar with our planning process or a planning process that's similar in their respective services. But did it work like it was supposed to? Did your staff come to you and say, here are our three COAs and was it a deliberate planning process? Or did you find yourself modifying and adjusting off of the established process? And what were some of the leadership lessons you learned by actually going through that planning process? 
Well, we followed the planning process precisely. That doesn't mean that I always did throughout my career, but I had a terrific operations officer who second deployment and just a sharp officer to begin with. But I would also say that the planning process allows enough flexibility and adaptability to change the way you react to things. Because as you know, Dave, the, at that time, 21 different missions of the MUSOC required you to be a relative uh, chameleon in the various ways you operate. And that kind of agility is inherent in the MUSOC program and helped us enormously. But when we prepare you into Mogadishu, you adapt your operations as much to fit the circumstances in the enemy as you do your capabilities. The Marines are the best trained force in the world to fight the U.S. Marines because, that, you know, we always assumed that the enemy was of the same characteristics and capabilities that we had. In Somalia, at the time, a population of close to a million, and with a total force of 1,850 Marines, many of whom would not be off the ship or outside the airfield at Mogadishu, you had to be fairly inventive. And on the one hand, I later reported in our after action, our operation in Mogadishu was a deception operation. We didn't have the capability to do all the things that were in our task. But you have to appreciate who the opposing force is. As you know, Dave, it seemed like every kid over about eight years old had a AK-47 or some other weapon. And our intent was to create so much movement and theater that we would be overwhelming. They didn't know that the CH-53 wasn't a more greater threat to them than a Cobra was because it was much bigger, louder, etc. So we used all of the helos as gunships, and we had our own AAVs, but we also downloaded AAVs from the MPS ships. Sadly, we didn't have the crews to man them. We didn't have the gun systems and the ammunition, but the Somalis didn't know that. So what we would do is we'd take the AVs and park those behemoths at critical intersections, and we would have short man crews and operators, and we did a lot of things. You know, with our artillery battery, we turned them into an infantry company, but we also had them firing a loom at night, which uh, has a psychological effect on the Somalis. We had uh, carrier came into play there, and that was a completely different story, but we had them flying their in our F-14s right over top and be as loud and as imposing as they could be. And we did a number of things like this. But we also did a lot of humanitarian things. And the code we used was that we were going to completely intimidate the bad and befriend the good. So fresh water, meals, you know, clearing the streets, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which we did in Mogadishu by door and wherever we operated. I'll stop there because I've gone on too long. What were some of, when you were presented your courses of action by your operations officer, was there a throwaway COA? Were all three of them? Or was the mission so defined that you kind of knew what the course of action was going to be and you really didn't need the two other ones? The geographic constraints of the landing area pretty much made one core obvious. Uh, it's still useful to have three because expansion to three or four cores can also expand the way you think about things and adapt the most obvious course of action. We could have all landed over the beach, but as you recall, Dave, it was a very constricted beach. Yes, I do recall. 
the hydrography of it meant that you could land the AVs over it, not much more. A and you could not get LCACs or AAVs or anything else traditional into the port. So we had to land by combat raider craft and rubber boats, which we did. Company landed that way. The only combat landing, to my knowledge, has ever been conducted by U.S. Marines that way. And, of course, we lifted one company in by air. And then we formed a, you know, the infantry company out of the battery and a maneuver company out of the LAVs and H&S company, which enabled us to move inland. But our strong preference in any amphibious landing was to land at night. To us, there is only one time to land. You do it at night because we're comfortable in night operations, and they aren't. But we modified that in Mogadishu. And the reason is that in this, what I call a deception operation, we wanted to make a theater out of it, to make a real show for the Somalis of overwhelming power. So we landed at the last points of dark so we could protect the landings in the port and at the airfield and seize those two while it was still dark. But we wanted all the uh, drama of the aircraft and both helos and fixed wing and the drama of the LCAC coming in. We had no LCUs, by the way, in this small amphibious ready group. But we also considered that the Somali warriors, you'll remember this, Dave, spent the night chewing the drug called cot, K-H-A-T. And the cot had a habit of making the people that chewed it kind of unpredictable and ornery. But after a period of this uh, effect on them, then they crash. And the Somalis, uh, the different warlords and factions, all crashed in the wee hours of the morning. So when we landed, they were essentially completely useless. And for those reasons, we picked a different style of uh, landing and amphibious operations than we had done before. I have a picture from my days at the stadium, and there is an Amtrak sitting right in front of the stadium entrance that I remember being unmanned. As I zoom in on the picture, I don't even see a weapon system mounted on it, but it's interesting. I had forgotten about the use of the vehicles, even though they weren't capable, because I think there was a couple tanks that came off the MPF shipping too, and I remember the tank platoon, they didn't have any ammunition other than the 50 calibers and the coax, but nobody knew that, and they were running around the city, and they were quite intimidating, but the dark secret was they didn't have any ammunition uploaded in them. I recall that story very clearly, or that situation very clearly. And then, of course, trying to create the theater, everybody has seen the footage of Christiana Amapur on the beachhead with all of her lights and interviewing the Marines as they came in, and some poor first lieutenant who has now become the spokesman for the entire DOD on that beach underneath the glare of lights. I've seen that video a couple times. He maintained his composure and was actually a little bit humorous in his interview. But that was back when, again, you didn't have communication. So it's not like you were getting real-time television feeds on the ship. On the Tripoli, I'm wondering what it was like the moment you found out, hey, we just landed in our combat rubber rating crap and there's news reporters here. Do you recall that moment, what it was like? There's an interesting story behind this. We had no idea that the media would be on the beach. Force Recon went in first with the SEALs. And the story uh, later came to light was that the Department of Defense, led by Dick Cheney, had decided this was a real media opportunity. And without telling anybody, least of all, most of all, the Mew, he told the media exactly where and when the landing would be conducted. So they all dutifully ran down there. 
and got on the beach with their cameras and clig lights. Same thing in the port. And I went airborne in a Huey to coordinate. And the Commodore was then and, and became a very close friend, was on the, the ship watching all this. And all we saw was flashing lights. And you couldn't tell whether they were flashes from weapons. As a matter of fact, there's no reason to believe they were anything but that, because no one could imagine that somebody would be stupid enough to tell the media where we were landing. But the small unit leaders in the port and the airfield did a magnificent job of, and the individual Marines of, uh, you know, constraining themselves when they were first confronted with that, because it could have been absolutely catastrophic. I was told by a female reporter who was in the uh, port that she was running with her cameraman to try and get some film of the Marines landing in the port. And she was running along a warehouse side, turned the corner, just as a Marine corporal was coming from the other direction, and they had a face-to-face -face split second, and it could have easily shot her, because you can imagine the tension at that time in the dark. Yes. And she gave him great credit for possessing the discipline and the wisdom judgment to control the situation. And that's true of all of them. All of the Marines did a terrific job. If there's one tenant of a United States Marine that has seemed to endure the test of time, it's discipline and constraint at the most appropriate and needed times. I love hearing that story. I can't say that it surprises me because I think that that is one of the hallmarks of our service. That woman is lucky to be alive and thankfully to the discipline and smart thinking of that young Marine Corporal in a very scary situation. We can both attest to how scary situations can be like that, especially in the dark. But I never knew that story about Dick Cheney in the press. That's, that's really interesting. I'm wondering, as we wrap up here on the Mew story, is there one thing that you can recall when you look back on your entire time? I mean, you were leading an amphibious assault off of a Mew. I can't recall us ever in combat putting a company ashore in combat rubber raider craft either, so I think you're right about that. But in the blink of an eye, you had gone from planning and training to doing it for real. I'm just wondering... What were some of the most formative leadership lessons that you took away from that command and that operation that would be useful to younger leaders to hear about now? Two stories. One of them is that it is very, very hard for a leader to stand on the bridge or on the bridge wing or in some location and watch Marines going into the attack or an amphibious landing and not being right there with them, not being in the AAV or, you know, in the rubber boat or in the helo assault or something like that. It's just hard to do because all your career you've been trained that you will share the dangers and struggles of the Lance Corporals. So that was hard to do. And of course, I was in the helo and landed as soon as uh, the company seized the airfield, but that's not the same. Now, I want to tell a story. You may recall that the K-4 traffic circle was one of the most contentious areas in Mogadishu. I do recall that. And areas north of that and east of that. But we were augmented by a company of foreign legionnaires right after we landed. And they were fantastic. The French were exceedingly gracious in offering all that they had. And this company came out of uh, Djibouti, and they later also assigned a company of French Marines. 
and uh, there was an outpost to protect the port and airfield from interdiction, manned by the French, but also by one of these Potemkin village AAVs that we had. Now, to put this in context, at that time, we were all acutely aware of the lessons of the Beirut bombing and how a single truck had breached the perimeter, driven up to the barracks, and killed a massive number of Marines, some of whom we knew. So when we manned that outpost, it was with that in mind. Of course, the French had also suffered from the Beirut bombing in their own explosion. So it was late at night, poor selection by the French lieutenant who was in charge, but he positioned his unit about a third of the way up a hill. And there was an extraordinarily rudimentary barricade that he put out, but he used what he had on the scene at the time, just essentially debris in the middle of the road. And a truck appeared over the top of the hill, moving slowly. No lights on. It seemed to pause at the top of the hill and then came down the hill and began picking up speed and started going very fast. A big truck and the French lieutenant and his troops were waving flashlights trying to get it to uh, slow down, but it obviously was paying no attention. And at the speed it was going, couldn't have stopped even if it had changed its mind. So the unit, the French Marines and the Marines that were attached to him, opened fire, shot up the truck, it busted through the barricade, began swerving wildly, and ran into a building not far past the barricade. Killed a number of the Somali men that were in the vehicle and wounded a, what we thought was a very young girl. And it was a big incident. And I got out there immediately and uh, was assessing the situation. And then it became light. We went back to the MUCP and a colonel from what was really the MEF headquarters, but the combined joint task force came down, a lawyer said, I'm here to investigate this incident. And I threw him out of the CP and then picked up the phone and called the commander of Marine Forces Somalia and a major general named Wilhelm. It was actually the first Marine Division. Sure. I've heard of him. Yep. He was actually the CG First Marine Division, later became a four-star combatant commander. And I told him, you know, of course, we had reported the incident and all that we knew about it. But in that phone call, I told him that this guy had come down to investigate our actions. And I told General Wilhelm I'd thrown him out and that if uh, the intent was to investigate every firefight that the MU had, that they needed to find a different commander. And General Wilhelm said, hell, I'll beat that. They're going to have to find a new CG of Marine Forces Somalia. And he said, I'll get right back to you. I'm calling General Johnston, CG-1 MIF, but then CG of the Joint Task Force. And he told General Johnston about this thing coming down there. And General Johnston was an incredibly fine officer. And he said, you and Newbold did the right thing. There will be no investigation. If there's any consequences, I'll handle them. And uh, the buck stops with me. And, you know, although the media reported it and some second guess, from uh, antiseptic environs back in the States, what we had done. Nobody on the ground did, and I was completely backed up by two senior headquarters. That's a great story. I really appreciate you sharing that with me because, uh, or with us, because I think we could probably spend a whole hour talking about this. So I'll just end it with this comment and say that every time we add a layer of risk aversion to either training or real life scenario, I think we introduce the specter of doubt 
And I think if I was First Lieutenant Dave Armstrong and I was in your command and I had heard that you kicked an investigating officer out of the CP and took it all the way up to General Johnston and through then General Wilhelm, I think I probably would have been fist pumping up in the air for you and applauding you and celebrating that. I think you probably won a lot of hearts and minds with that decision. And you're right. You can't investigate every single thing that happens. And at some point, you put a lot of trust and confidence in your young leaders. And if every action results in an investigation, nobody's going to take any action. So I got to imagine that that was... I, I couldn't imagine either General Wilhelm or General Johnston ever coming back and having a different opinion on what you did. You mentioned, though, it was kind of interesting. I do want a quick plug for an article that I read in the November 2022 issue of Proceedings. It was written by a Marine captain by the name of Michael Hansen, who I think right now is on a UDP over in Okinawa, but he's somehow finding time to write for Proceedings. And he wrote an article called Lead from the Front, Not Always. And in it, he writes, and I'll just read the quote because I'm looking at it right now. New leaders are institutionally conditioned to lead from the front, but slogans such as lead by example, lead from the point of friction, and most prominently lead from the front can be misleading. Taken too literally, these sayings can constitute bad advice. They cause new leaders to confuse their purpose. Should a unit leader walk point on patrol? Should a unit leader be the one to kick in the door and be the first Marine to make entry into a hostile building? Should a leader be the first member of his unit to go over the top or cross a wide danger area under fire? Many young leaders would emphatically say yes. Experience tells us, however, they should emphatically say no. When you told the story about how hard it was as a leader to be sitting on the ship and watching Marines go into the fight while you're on the bridge wing, it reminded me of that article because I do think that one of the hardest things to do as a leader is make sure that you are in the right place at the right time to be making the decisions that you're supposed to be making as a leader. And that is not always on the rubber boat going ashore. Sometimes it's in the CP and being in a place where you can fix the points of friction rather than being in the exact point of friction. And your story is so sage. And I'm so glad you shared that because I think it's just another example of one of the leadership challenges that every leader will have to face at some point is where should they be and what should they be doing? And being on the boat going ashore wasn't the place for the Mew commander. So thank you for sharing that story. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour about Somalia, and maybe we will again someday. But I do want to pivot into the final question and point in your career that I think is worthy of some discussion. And it goes back to the billet that you had on active duty when you were the director of operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it's worth noting that you were actually, I think if I have the dates right, you were the Joint Chiefs of Staff when 9-11 actually happened. And there's many articles out there. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think, was General Myers. And if I have this correct, if my memory serves me correctly, General Pace was on the Chiefs of Staff, maybe the Vice Chief of Staff at the time. And you were the Director of Operations as a Lieutenant General when the idea to invade Iraq happened. And the reason I want to ask you about this experience that you had is because one of my previous guests, General Dale Alford, said something that stuck with me when he said, every job you have, you need to lead like it's the last job you'll ever have. And you were in a situation where you were adamant that a decision was being made that was the wrong decision. And I think the reason it's so important to talk about this and have listeners hear this is this is one of those times that you exercised that old bullet point on the old blue fitness reports of moral courage. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that time in your career. 
Yes, I can. And there ought to be a lot of questions from anybody listening to the podcast. In fact, there ought to be a lot of challenges from anybody listening to the podcast about what I did and why and when I did. But to give some of the history of it, as J3 responsible for operations, uh, I was approximately five grades above my competence level. So coupled with the fact I had never matured beyond captain made me uh, more obnoxious, probably. When the whole Iraq thing came up, it's important to remember we were still in Afghanistan. The threat that culminated 9-11 had not gone away. The threat to the United States was from al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and what they could do to us. Whether it was accurate or not, the best intelligence available was that they were still trying to conduct operations similar to 9-11 in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere overseas. And while we had defeated al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, we had not destroyed them. And it's like addressing a snake that's in the same small area you're in. You know, it isn't sufficient to defeat a snake, and it isn't sufficient to defeat al-Qaeda. And unfortunately, through bad judgment, we had allowed al-Qaeda to escape into uh, Pakistan. But with the job still unfinished, decisions were made to shift some of the most important resources we had out of Afghanistan and into the Persian Gulf area. Not only overhead, like satellites, but in platforms, uh, airborne platforms, Forms, but troops on the ground, special forces, all the things that were most needed to identify where the remnants of al-Qaeda were and to take them on were moved out of there. And that was the startling thing for us that were in the operations business. It made no sense to us. What we found out later was there was a cabal of political appointees who had been trying since before the election to put President George Bush into office that believed that they the goal of the United States in foreign policy should be to exonomize whatever the means uh, by whatever purpose. And they argued after 9-11 that the real enemy was not al-Qaeda, but was uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein. We were all enormously confused and perplexed by that, but our pushing back uh, didn't have much effect. And then uh, the, the broadcast was uh, from the president that we're considering all options in Iraq, weapons of mass destruction there, we have to confront them, uh, we'll do it with the UN and allies, but this is a situation which we cannot allow to exist. So they shifted assets to the Gulf, and we were told to prepare to modify the plan for the invasion of Iraq. And in the process, intelligence came pouring in. But there's intelligence, and then there's intelligence. Intelligence from the CIA, DIA, from allies, and professional intelligence organizations all gave us a very clear picture of what was going on. But intelligence portrayed by this cabal of people in the administration and some outside the administration was that the professional intelligence organizations had it all wrong. And they were unfortunately the ones closest to the president. And military advice was neither solicited or wanted. Neither was intelligence advice. And it was a situation where leadership was by intimidation. And it, it began to be very troubling. But we took some comfort that President 
President Bush assured us that he would consider all things and, quote, give peace a chance. But over time, it became obvious that there were people in the administration that would accept nothing less than invasion. As a matter of fact, in direct conversation with the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Douglas Fife, when I was going back and forth with him about the negotiations going on and what we were doing about staging troops, et cetera, he said, we're not going to accept surrender, even surrender meaning that we're going to invade regardless. And Doug Fife and people like him all the way up through Deputy Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense, the Vice President and his group of neocons were all manipulating circumstances to the President that would depict this in the worst possible light. I'm not going to go into more depth than that, except to say that it occurred to me that the Joint Chiefs were not really privy to or not enabled to provide counsel. The chain went directly from the commander of CENTCOM to Secretary of Defense to Cheney to President Bush. And we were going to invade no matter what. And although it's not widely known, I went to uh, the commandant at the time and offered my resignation as a way for him to get with the others of the Joint Chiefs, the director of operations of the Joint Chiefs staff resigning, in order to raise the issue past all these obstacles directly to the president. But the commandant thought that was not a particularly good idea. So I went back and continued to work. But while we went through many more evolutions like this, I submitted my retirement letter probably in about May or June of 2002. Now, because I had risen so rapidly, I was a frocked three-star. In fact, I was still a frocked two-star, and I would have resigned as a one-star. But that's okay. I was trying to gain some allies to bring this crazy situation to the light and to the present. I dealt every day as J3 with J3s and all the combatant commands. I dealt with all the services directors of operations. And I dealt with four stars and three stars and other positions. And almost without exception, they were dumbfounded by the way this thing was going down. Not only the, uh, the political side, the planning side at the strategic level, but also the war plans were absolute buffoonery at some points, including making the entire invasion by one brigade of Marines, one brigade of the U.S. Army. Because after all, they knew that uh, Iraq would collapse like a house of cards. We'd be greeted by as liberators in the country who would soon become like Iowa, and we could go home. So all of these guys were perplexed by it, but unfortunately, as strongly as some of them felt, none of them uh, were willing to make comments uh, to the most senior leaders. So I retired and uh, went on with life. Over to you, Dave. I just can't even imagine being in a room and experiencing all of that. And it's, it was just such a, an incredible point of time in our history and just to hear you recount the whole situation is just it makes me think that i need to go back and read every single book again that i've ever read about that point of time in our history but i'm wondering if there's some way of funneling all of that vast experience dealing with three stars and four stars and as you said dumbfounded by decisions and the politics and the everything that was involved with it can you distill it down into some leadership ideas or leadership examples that can help younger and emerging leaders be resolute in surfacing issues that they seem with bosses who don't seem to be listening. Because I think 
All right, this may draw your ire if I say it incorrectly, so I'm going to try really hard, but I think it's easy to resign as a three-star, and it's very difficult to resign as a major with 12 years and not at your 20-year mark. And so it might be easier to surface issues and have a position and disagree with people of serious rank like three and four stars. I think it's very difficult for a major to do it because, as you said very early on in our conversation about the way promotion boards go and dealing with very qualified in competitive situations on promotion boards where everybody's a stellar officer, what sort of advice do you have for a younger officer that could be helpful to them in standing up in a situation where their voice needs to be heard or they disagree with something and help them effectively do that? Well, that's a good point, and I have uh, several observations, most of which I'll probably forget as I begin to talk about it. Number one, you're correct. It is more difficult for a staff sergeant to do it than it is for a three-star. And I'm reminded how many times uh, I stood at the bar as a captain or a major or even a lieutenant colonel when something, uh, there was a challengeable judgment came up among us leaning against the bar. And we'd make a comment like, what does that lieutenant colonel or colonel have to lose? You know, they can retire, good income. Why don't they stand up for something? So that's in reinforcement of what you said. You know, by the time you're retirement eligible, you don't have as much to lose. So you would think that would enable people to have a stronger voice. That's the first observation. Second observation is that it's almost never true. And we can go into that. Another observation is that these things all have to be done in private, not in public. I made my uh, statement about Iraq when I wrote an article that appeared in Time magazine after I retired. And it would have been outlandish and totally inappropriate if I'd done something public on active duty. If I felt that strongly, then it was time to resign, retire, and do your own thing. Another observation with that predicament of the major or the staff sergeant, there are ways to do this and times to do it. Uh, first, about the timing. I did what I did because I knew who would pay the price of folly, and that's the Lance Corporals, the 18 to 22-year-olds. Uh, and I think that was borne out. And that has, you know, such grave consequence of national level decisions about an invasion that it rises to a level beyond the mundane and the ordinary. You know, we all disagree with the bosses on occasion. As often as not, the boss is probably right. But even if the boss isn't, if it's mundane, then the responsibility is give your opinion, let the boss make the decision, and then carry it out to the best of your abilities. So time and seriousness of the event, but also how you do it. And that is, you know, it's one thing to say, Colonel, you're out of your mind. That's the stupidest decision I've ever heard. And there's uh, another way to do it in which you can say, you know, sir, I or ma'am, I think there may be something to what you've said, but a, another view may be, or my job is to do everything I can to make your task successful. But uh, we ought to also consider this. You can see what I'm saying, Dave. Uh, style is also important. Brusqueness and, uh, you know, an offending manner really don't accomplish anything. So it's, uh, frankly, you have to be clever at times. And you have to appreciate the circumstances you're in. And my last comment is, is this. Uh, I first learned that the uh, oath of office for officers and enlisted 
were different when I was a young officer, and uh, I resented that. I thought the oath of office ought to be exactly the same because we're all in this same gun club equally. But over time, as I began to study it more and think about it, I came to believe that there was real wisdom behind the differences of the oaths. The enlisted oath, I solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution, etc., and I will obey the orders of the president and the officers appointed over me. The officer oath doesn't say that. The officer oath, as you know, says that you will faithfully discharge the duties of the office appointed and under the Constitution of the United States. The supreme authority is the Constitution of the United States. That's not to say officers don't have an obligation to obey the orders of their seniors. But the distinction between the two is that an officer is charged with demonstrating judgment especially in those supremely critical instances. And we charge and listed this incredible responsibility for carrying out the orders, even when it may mean death. But the corollary to that is that officers must show deep faith and respect for that obligation of the enlisted by standing up for what they believe is right and by showing that kind of judgment in support of the United States, not a single individual. And I'll pause there and see what that leads you to ask. That's fantastic. And for listeners who haven't already heard my interview last fall with Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps Black, he talks about the difference between the oath of office too and, and draws some distinctions there as well. And and I think that those are important. And I'm going to make myself sound like an idiot here, but I'm just going to do it because I think it's part of the learning point here. When I took the oath of office, I'm not sure when I was 22 years old that I really understood it. I mean, I, I knew what the words meant. But I didn't really understand the point that you just made, which is the difference between the oaths. I knew there was one. I didn't think about it like you just put it. And it wasn't until much later in life that I did actually start to understand the difference. I just said them and got promoted. But the way you put it is really important because that difference of the enlisted oath saying that they swear an oath to those appointed over them and the officer swears an oath not to a person but to the Constitution, that distinction is very important because your job as an officer is to make sure that you are serving the enlisted men and women who take the oath because you are the person appointed over them. And it's your job to stand up and use your good judgment to uphold your oath, which is to the Constitution and not to a person. And again, to a young person, everything that I just said and everything that you just said, sir, could still sound like words, but at some point, leaders really need to understand that that is a huge component and difference in the actual oath that you're taking. And again, to me, an oath is an oath. I mean, you raise your right hand and you say something, there's no there's no going back on it. And I just think what you talked about there taking the oath and, and standing up those obligations is a, is a great place to conclude what has been a fantastic interview with us. I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's invaluable. And while I'm not sure this one provides any epiphanies for audiences out there, I think the body of podcasts that you're doing cumulatively might provide some thoughts for up-and-coming leaders and how they handle things. So it's a great thing you're doing. Thank you. I'm really enjoying doing this project. I recently had 
a current serving lieutenant general say to me, Dave, you're probably a better leader now, given the past year and a half of this project that you've been working on personally than you ever were on active duty. And he didn't mean it as a slight. He just meant that I'm learning. And if I'm learning, other people are learning and I'm really enjoying myself with this project. It also gives me an opportunity to meet people like you and hear your stories and facilitate you sharing them with other leaders and emerging leaders and just people who are actually curious as well. But I couldn't do this project if it wasn't for people like you and the generosity of your time. So thank you very much for that. Lieutenant General Greg Newbold, really appreciate you being on the podcast today. One final thought, Dave, sorry to add on to this postscript, but whether it's accurate or not, no, please do. It's uh, There's always a final thought. <laughs> okay. Whether it's accurate or not, it's attributable to Confucius that he who learns from his own mistakes is a fool. He who learns from the mistakes of others is a wise man. Ooh, I'm going to type that up and put it in the show notes. That was fantastic. Who said that again? It's attributed to Confucius. Okay. That's a fantastic one. I have boiled it down to saying from life's greatest mistakes come life's greatest lessons, but I like yours better. I think I'm going to adjust my uh, my saying there, but thank you for that. That's a great place to conclude. But again, it sounds crazy to say it like this, but thank you for your service. You are one of the people who stewarded one of the finest fighting organizations, if not the finest fighting organization that this world has ever seen. And your contributions were immense. And I enjoyed serving at the same time you did. I'm glad we shared some heat and dust together. I've really enjoyed this and I'm glad that our mutual friend Mark Zinner introduced us. And again, thank you so much for your time. Well, let's continue the